Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning. Let's turn back to Romans 3, focusing our attention upon verse 25 and verse 26. Here we find the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Rome and expounding the gospel message to them. The good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you can see there on two occasions in both verse 25 and verse 26, we see a reference to God through the Gospel demonstrating His righteousness. See it in verse 25. Why did God set forth the Lord Jesus Christ as a propitiation by His blood through faith? It was to demonstrate His righteousness. Then in verse 26, this is echoed and repeated and confirmed 
to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. Now, in the context here, Paul has been saying much, especially early in the chapter, concerning the unrighteousness of all humanity. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Not just a hair's breadth short, but uh, in some sense, infinitely short. Uh, Every single thing that we do has fallen short. Comprehensively short of God's standard. We're told that there's no one righteous. Not one. Verse 10. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. And it, it continues on to deal with the fact that we don't truly do good works. Even our good works are stained with sin. Uh, our words, our lips, are as an open tomb. Uh, we practice deceit. We speak poisonous words, deceitful words, cursed and uh, cursing words, and bitter words. And those words are put into action through violence and shedding of blood, which we see throughout the history of the world, even in our own day. Man's unrighteousness. And he's been doing this for several chapters. He's been showing the unrighteousness of the Gentile world in the second half of chapter 1, that the Gentile world, though it knew so many things, or ought to have known so many things about God from His creation, nevertheless, the Gentile world suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And then the Jewish world, which had a knowledge of God's character and commandments in the Old Testament Scriptures, was filled with hypocrisy, uh, condemning the Gentiles and yet living in such an inconsistent way that the Gentiles themselves would look at the Jews and blaspheme the God of Israel because of their inconsistency. They would condemn something and then they would practice the very same thing. So we can see throughout the world, Paul is declaring that all mankind, every individual, every family, every institution is polluted by sin and is burdened with guilt by nature. And that's the reason why we need the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we need the righteousness of God. Verse 21 of our chapter, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So if you're seeking to be righteous by the law, you've already failed. Adam and Eve failed on your behalf. You've failed on your own behalf. There is no righteousness unto eternal life in the sight of God based upon your performance of keeping God's moral law or His ceremonial law or any type of law that you could imagine. You've broken it all. You are, says Paul, a sinner. And this is witnessed by the law and the prophets. But he says what's also witnessed by the law and the prophets is this that there is a righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness of God. Verse 22, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you believe and receive what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. You believe it, you receive it, and it is unto you and upon you. Notice that in verse 22. The righteousness of God that God transfers to believers that He imputes and accounts unto every believer is to all and on all who believe. So it was accomplished by Christ 
and it was reckoned by God, and now it's reckoned to and upon the believer. Just like if money was transferred into your account. Better stated, somebody paid all of your debts and then transferred a billion dollars into your bank account. That's the idea. Our sin is taken away and the perfect law keeping and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ is transferred to the account of the believer, giving them a legal standing before Almighty God as perfectly righteous. And it's also on every believer. It's upon every believer. Even as our righteousness is as filthy rags, and even as Adam and Eve clothed themselves in the, the, uh, the fig leaves, those filthy garments, those inadequate coverings are removed, and the righteousness of Christ is as a robe of righteousness to fully cover our nakedness and our shame. This is the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes from God, which was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And Paul is moving through the logic of the good news of salvation. He points out that verse 24, those who are justified, that is, they're the recipients of this divine righteousness. Those who are declared righteous and given a right and title to the inheritance of eternal life, those who receive that receive it freely by God's grace. It's not something that they earned. Even their faith itself is a gift. It's not as though even their repentance and faith in any way merits or earns redemption. In fact, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the redemption price freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So as we've seen in previous sermons, the fact is salvation is free to the believer but it's not ultimately free. Jesus had to purchase it with His own perfect righteousness and with the shedding of His blood at the cross. Jesus has redeemed and purchased His people and granted them eternal life. And we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ has been set forth by God the Father. Verse 25. He's been set forth as a propitiation. In other words, his death on the cross is such that when it's declared, people are informed of the fact and it becomes evident that the wrath of God has been turned away. Jesus Christ is a propitiation. He's set forth in that way. The God who is angry with the wicked every day is at the same time proclaiming and setting forth this Jesus who died on the cross to take away all the sins of every believer and to turn away the wrath of God from all who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us from the wrath to come. And that propitiation is something that procures God's favor. It's not just to take away His wrath, but through the death of Christ, Ephesians 1 tells us that we're adopted as God's beloved children and that we're accepted in God's beloved Son. So Christ's death is declared as something that takes away God's wrath. We're no longer children of wrath, children of disobedience, but clothed in Christ, we are His beloved children. Behold what manner of love the Father has uh, given to us that we should be called the children of God. So there's propitiation by His shed blood. Again, it's through faith. Nothing that we do to deserve it. Simply 
recognizing that it's true, believing it, receiving it, resting upon it and it alone with not even an ounce, not even half a percentage point confidence in our own law-keeping. Through faith and through faith alone. And we're told that this setting forth of Christ as such a propitiation is for the purpose of demonstrating God's righteousness. The reason that God has set forth His Son in this way and saved sinners in this particular way is to demonstrate His righteousness. Now, we have to understand the reference to God's righteousness here as distinct from the reference to God's righteousness in verse 21. Verse 21 is speaking of the righteousness that comes from God that is to all and on all who believe. This is the righteousness of Christ, which was accomplished through the redemptive plan of God and which is imputed to believers. And Christ is set forth as the one who accomplishes that righteousness. And then Paul builds on that by saying, well, why, was, why has God set forth His Son as accomplishing all of this righteousness for believers? It's to demonstrate His righteousness. Not the righteousness accomplished by Christ in verse 21, but it is to say that the plan of redemption centering in Christ's righteousness is itself righteous. So in particular, Christ's righteousness justifies the believer. But on a macro scale, the plan of redemption on account of Christ's righteousness justifies God and declares Him to be righteous and demonstrates that He, the one who justifies sinners, is also just and righteous in doing so. And so we see here in this text that Christ's death not only justifies sinners, but it also serves to justify God Himself. Now, of course, we're not saying that sinners are justified in the same way God is, but this is biblical language. Believers are justified when they believe in Christ, their sin is taken away, and they're clothed in His righteousness. But the fact that God saves sinners in such a way as to perfectly satisfy the demands of His own law declares God to be righteous. It shows and demonstrates that He even in extending mercy to sinners, has done all things well in a good and righteous way. Without cutting corners, without sweeping anything under the rug, God is righteous. So Christ's death not only justifies sinners, but in a distinct sense, it also serves to justify God Himself. Now let's unpack this particular doctrine. We think of Christ's death. We've already said Christ's death is, is this climax of God's redemptive purpose in which Jesus fully satisfies the law of God. Philippians 2 speaks of the death of Christ in these terms that, that Christ was obedient even unto the death of the cross. And what that tells us is that Christ's full satisfaction of God's precepts obeying God's will, God's commandments, which we failed to keep, His perfect satisfaction of God's precepts and God's commandments climaxed in His perfect satisfaction of God's wrath and punishment against our sin. 
He was obedient even unto death. So Jesus going to the cross, why did he go there in obedience to his Father who sent him into the world to be the propitiation for our sins? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, as man, as man, as the God-man, he pleaded with his heavenly Father. And yet he said, if this must be, if I must die to save my people from their sins, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. So it's his obedience to God's will. It's the perfect law-keeping that's imputed and accounted to believers that is their robe of righteousness in the sight of God. But it's unto his death in which he suffered the penalty of our failure to keep the law. So you see what some have called his active and passive obedience or his preceptive and penal obedience come together at the cross when he pays the full redemption price for sins. He is the propitiation. He is the substitute. He is the reconciliation for his people bringing us to God. Christ's death and we must say, at least in, in passing here, though it's not the, the key emphasis of the text, Christ's death does justify sinners. We've already pointed that out. That's not all it does, but it does justify sinners. It declares them legally righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. He's a substitute. He fulfills the righteousness, and that righteousness is accounted and imputed to His people. And this is true in both the Old and New Testaments. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the death of Christ justifies every believing sinner. Sometimes we have to emphasize that. People, for whatever reason, misread the Scriptures, misinterpret, misunderstand, in some cases misconstrue the biblical gospel so as to think that it's only after the cross that the death of Christ justifies sinners and that somehow before the cross there was some other program or pattern or dispensation of salvation at that time, but that's not the case. In fact, you look at verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So it's saying there were sins committed before the cross, no doubt by the believing sinners who lived and died prior to the incarnation. Uh, you know, we think of Abel, we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and all of the old covenant saints who committed sins prior to the death of Christ. And we're told that God sent forth His Son in the fullness of time to be a propitiation, to pay the redemption price, because in his forbearance, he hadn't actually punished the sins of Old Testament saints until the cross. So he was bestowing upon them justification, adoption, sanctification, all the benefits of redemption purchased by Christ, but he had not yet received the full payment price at the cross of Calvary. Uh, I've used this illustration before. It's like when you sign a mortgage, you sign on the dotted line, you promise to pay a certain amount by a certain uh, time period, and there, you know, there's a certain point where it has to be paid however many years into the future. But in the meantime, you get to move into the house, and in a sense, it's your house. 
in a sense. It belongs to the bank, but it's yours because you've signed on the dotted line and uh, to some extent or another, they trust you that you're going to pay it on time and on schedule. It's the same way with the redemptive benefits that were bestowed upon Old Testament saints in this previous era before the cross. The fact is that from all eternity, the Son of God signed on the dotted line through what we call the covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. He agreed to pay this redemption price. He was good for it. And so the Old Testament saints, as it were, could move into the house and take possession of these redemptive benefits. But you see, all of it was predicated upon the fact that Christ would come and pay the redemption price. Because if Christ doesn't come and pay the redemption price, then God is not declared and demonstrated to be righteous. He's handing things out that have not been rightly obtained. He's showing mercy and favor to sinners who deserve destruction and misery according to His all-righteous character, His justice. So in order for God's righteous and just character to be manifested and put on display, Christ had to come to show that all of Abraham's sins, all of Isaac's sins, all of Jacob's many sins, all of Moses' sins, David's sins, all the sins of God's old covenant people which deserved wrath and damnation, Jesus came and died to show that God had righteously dealt with all of those previous offenses that had been committed. You see how serious the Lord takes the demonstration of His righteousness. Even in redemption, it seems that the, the, the key emphasis here is not on the salvation of those sinners, but on the manner in which God does it and the manner in which that method of salvation declares who He is and reveals and demonstrates His righteous character. Even in salvation. We'll say something about that, God willing, later on. But Christ's death does serve to justify sinners, not merely in the New Testament, but in the Old. In fact, look at the language that's used here. In His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And you have people that are tempted to say, well, you see, it's different. In the Old Testament, God just passed over sins. But in the New Testament, He's taken them away. He's forgiven them as far as the East is from the West. In the Old Testament, He simply passed over them. But in the New Testament, He, he washes them clean. What is scarlet and crimson is as white as snow, as white as wool in the New Testament. But you see the foolishness of this. Both of the passages I just quoted are from the Old Testament. We can sing throughout the, the book of Psalms of the blessedness of the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. And then we go to Romans chapter 4 and Paul is demonstrating the doctrines of the Gospel from those very passages. Romans 4 verse 7, he's quoting Psalm 32 and saying that David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of Abraham as the father of all justified believers. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, you see, in the Old Covenant, God passed over their sins. And the fact is, that language is very strong, redemptive language. It's not just that He looked the other way. 
When God passed over the sins of His people at the Exodus, the blood of the Passover lamb was was put upon the doorpost. It, It was a picture of what Christ would do. And the language is suggestive of every aspect of justification. There's nothing lacking in the justification of the Old Testament saints. In fact, that same language is used in one of the most comforting verses in all the Bible. I I think it's fair to say that most of the verses that comfort us the most about our justification actually come from the Old Testament. Uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. So if you think of Hebrew parallelism, these two things are meant to be taken together. Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. So to pardon iniquity and to pass over these previously committed offenses, it's the same thing. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, uh, Paul says that Christ is our Passover Lamb. We're to look at what Christ did as the means by which God passes over our sins. Doesn't bring His wrath and judgment, but rather declares us righteous. Goes on in the passage I'm reading in in Micah, He does not retain His anger forever, but uh, because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So this is a propitiation, a redemption that justifies sinners in the Old Testament. And of course, I don't think there'd be any debate that God justifies sinners in the New Testament. But Paul does point that out as well. Verse 26 of our text, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it was true with the previous era, it's true at the present time, Christ's death justifies sinners. But it also justifies God. It demonstrates God's righteousness. And this word demonstrate means to confirm by way of evidence. It demonstrates not only that all that God has done is righteous, but it demonstrates that God in His own character is perfectly righteous. And it does so in two special ways, two particular ways. Christ's death justifies God in terms of salvation. The plan of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation, and the application of salvation. Now, we might say, well, why, do, why does that need to be demonstrated? Well, Proverbs 17, verse 15 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So, injustice on either side of the scale 
is an abomination to the Lord. If a human earthly judge is lenient toward an offender and, and does not condemn their wickedness, then it's just as abominable to the Lord as a judge on earth, a human judge, who would dare to condemn someone for something that they're not guilty of, right? So to fail to condemn the guilty person or to condemn the person who is innocent, both of these things are an abomination to the Lord. Now, we tend in our own society to be more upset when an innocent person is condemned than we are uh, when a guilty person is let off the hook. Whatever that says about us, uh, it's in contrast to the character of God. God is not like that. Both of these things alike are an abomination in the sight of our just and righteous God. Now this raises the question, how is it that God can declare wicked sinners, hell-deserving sinners, to be righteous and to have an entitlement to eternal life? How can God do that? and still be just. Isn't that an abomination? And at this point, the Roman Catholic Church would come in and say that the Protestant doctrine of justification is nothing more than a legal fiction. God's declaring somebody righteous who's not really righteous in any sense, and so this is an abomination. And so they come in with their deceptive doctrine of justification by works, and if I can il illustrate it or describe it in a way that may, you may find helpful, they essentially say that you're justified by your sanctification. That God sends His Holy Spirit into your life at your baptism. That Holy Spirit imparts spiritual grace into your life. You're regenerated. And now you have righteousness infused into your character. Now we would agree that these things are true, not that it's by baptism, but we would agree that God does regenerate and sanctify and infuse righteousness into the believer. We have, uh, we've been born again. We have a new nature. We're new creatures in Christ. But they would say that the righteousness that's in, infused and imparted into the very nature of the believer at regeneration, that that righteousness is the thing that God looks for and looks at when He declares the verdict of justification. And so there's an initial justification. You're truly born again. God sees that, that righteousness, that righteousness in your character, in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, in your nature, in yourself. He sees it and declares you righteous, uh, as I said, at your baptism. But then, at the last day, God is going to look again. And He's going to look at the rest of your life and He's going to determine and declare whether you are still righteous or whether you've forfeited that righteousness and fumbled the football and you've made a mess of things, you've committed all of these heinous and deadly sins, and now God looks at you and there's no righteousness and so you go to hell. Even though you had the initial justification, uh, you've lost it and you've failed to receive the final justification. Now, it's important to realize that when God justifies a sinner, and when He justifies a sinner on the basis entirely and exclusively upon what Jesus did, okay, this is the Protestant doctrine of justification, when God does that, He is not pronouncing somebody righteous arbitrarily. He's not looking 
at someone who is completely wicked and righteous in every sense, someone who is legally unrighteous, we could say, and then pronouncing them legally righteous. He is not doing that. Because in justification, all of our sins are transferred to Christ, legally speaking, and Christ's righteousness is legally transferred to the believer so that when God looks at us legally, which is what a judge does, he's, a, he, he's uh, an officer of the court. He, he's concerned with that which is legal and forensic. And when he looks at our legal status, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he declares our legal status of righteousness on the basis of what has been imputed to us. So it's not arbitrary. It's not as though he's looking at someone who's legally unrighteous and saying, you're legally righteous. No, he's looking at someone who has received the legal righteousness of Christ imputed to their account. And now on that basis, on that legal basis, he is declaring that believer to be perfectly righteous in Christ. So salvation itself does demonstrate God's righteousness. The doctrine that Paul is proclaiming here, which is the same doctrine Luther and Calvin and the Reformers preached and proclaimed, this doctrine does not detract from God's righteousness. It actually declares it. It demonstrates it. And the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification undermines the righteousness of God because the righteousness required to obtain eternal life is not the meager and imperfect righteousness of our sanctification in this life. Even our best works are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Galatians 3, 13 and following says that if our righteousness is not such that fulfills every command in the law of God perfectly, then we're under a curse. So anyone who, who believes the Roman Catholic teaching and who seeks to be justified on the basis of their sanctified good works is going to find in the day of judgment that their sanctified good works do not meet the standard of God's perfect righteousness. And the only way for Rome to claim that it does is to dumb down the standard of God's righteousness, thereby detracting from God's attribute of perfect righteousness. So the only way to uphold God's perfect standard and His perfect attribute of righteousness is to believe that we're right with God on the basis of what Jesus did. Because there is no unrighteousness in Him. He fulfilled it perfectly. And that's the point. God is not merely the justifier of sinners, but He is perfectly just in doing so, as you see in verse 26. But it's also true that Christ's death justifies God in terms of damnation and judgment. If you go back to the earlier portion of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 3, it's speaking of those who were among God's covenant people, Israel. They received circumcision. They're members of the visible church. And Paul says, notwithstanding those outward privileges, if you don't have heart circumcision, you're still going to hell. And there's really, at the end of the day, no eternal value to it. And so uh, the question is asked in verse 1, what advantage then does the Jew have in being circumcised? And Paul essentially says, well, uh, those who are circumcised are part of the church. They have the Word of God, the means of salvation, so that they can have eternal value and heart circumcision. But verse 3, what if some did not believe? 
What if some covenant members who were circumcised, or we could say in the New Testament, what if some baptized church members didn't believe? What if somebody was baptized as an infant and they just grew up and refused to believe the gospel? What if somebody professed faith and was baptized, but then they fell away and never returned? What if someone didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So if people are part of the visible church and then they go to hell, doesn't that speak ill of God's faithfulness and God's righteousness? He says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Or he's saying, if, he, if every man was a liar, including all the covenant members, God would still be true. Because God's covenant takes into account both salvation and damnation. God saves those who believe. He damns and destroys those who will not. And, and this is clear in all of His promises and threatenings in the midst of all of biblical revelation, you find God frequently making this point and uh, the promises and threatenings of the covenant are on display throughout the Bible. And they're on display such that when God brings judgment, notice verse, the end of verse 4 of chapter 3, he's quoting David from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so you have Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of God Himself in the book of Job. Satan's looking at redemption. The angels, the good angels are longing to look into it, but Satan's looking into it, and he's condemning it. This is unrighteous. This is unfair. These people don't deserve this. This is wrong. Uh, he's, he's accusing your conscience with that same type of nonsense that no doubt he would seek to bring into the courts of heaven. But when God is judged, whether by Satan or by skeptics or by Roman Catholic heretics, when God is judged, He overcomes. His righteousness, His equity, His justice is vindicated and demonstrated. He is justified in all His words. He's justified in salvation, but He's also here justified in damnation, even in the chastening of His children, like in David's case. When God brings judgment, He brings judgment and He brings only the amount of judgment that is deserved. God doesn't bring greater punishment or lesser punishment. God brings exactly what is appropriate. In David's case, even as a fatherly chastening, God brought judgment. In the case of those who reject God entirely, who sin against an eternal God and who are not saved by Christ, they receive eternal punishment. And God is justified. His justice is on display. And my friends, listen, if God's mercy is just, if the salvation of sinners, if God's mercy is full of justice and righteousness, and God would not even spare His own Son in pouring out mercy on undeserving sinners, what makes you think that His justice is going to be lenient? What makes you think if His mercy doesn't spare Christ, what makes you think His justice will spare anyone who rejects the Gospel? If God's mercy is just, how much more is His justice just? If the grace of the Lamb is filled with justice, 
how much more so the wrath of the Lamb. So in, in this Gospel, in the fact that God has brought perfect justice to bear upon Christ on the cross, it really demonstrates and vindicates the fact that He'll bring perfect justice and judgment upon the wicked at the last day. He has every right to do it. In some sense, if you think of Jesus as the one who sits on the throne, on the great white throne at the last day, as the one who gathers the sheep and the goats and who receives some into everlasting uh, blessedness and sends others into everlasting misery, if you think of Christ on the throne, who's going to bring a charge against Him? You're unjust. And He can say, I suffered the infinite wrath of God. God did not spare His wrath against me. And therefore, what right do you have? Many many of you who have rejected the Gospel itself, what right do you have to demand that God would spare His wrath against you? So here we find a vindication of God's justice. Now how do we apply this text? First, first in our theology, notice that as Paul is building momentum, that he he makes reference to God's free grace, to the redemption and propitiation accomplished by Christ, but he takes it to a higher level. Paul is saying here that God has done all of these acts of redemption for the purpose of demonstrating who He is. Why has God ordained to save sinners? to declare and reveal His character. Though God is concerned with the well-being and the joy and blessedness of each one of His children for whom Christ died, that is absolutely the case, but that is not the ultimate end of salvation. God has sent His Son to justify us freely through faith. He loves us with an everlasting love as His people. And He warmly invites all here today to believe on Christ, to receive salvation, and you shall dwell in His house forever in perfect blessedness. But that's not the ultimate end of redemption and of the Gospel. It is to demonstrate His righteousness. To demonstrate it with respect to the past. To demonstrate it at the present time. That He might be regarded as just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the end of the day, salvation is not about us. It's an open door. Come and be saved. But ultimately, if you do and you receive salvation, the ultimate purpose and end of that is not in you and your well-being and your joy. It's in the declaration and demonstration of God's character. That He is merciful to justify and that He is just to punish sin. He does not wink at sin. He doesn't look the other way. He's just and righteous. And so, my friends, if redemption ultimately amounts to God's self-revelation, if the purpose of redemption is for God to reveal Himself, then I think in the Protestant and Reformed circles, we need to be very much more concerned with theology proper. When I say theology proper, I mean the study of God. His nature, His attributes, the three persons of the Godhead, the personal properties of the three persons of the Godhead, God's triunity. We need to be more concerned with theology proper than we are. We gravitate 
to teachings that deal with salvation and soteriology, as we say, the study of God's work of salvation. But the fact of the matter is, this text is telling us salvation is subservient to the declaration of who God is. As we've said in our summary of the text, it serves, the death of Christ serves or is subservient to justifying God Himself. And so, Jesus in John 17, verse 3, proclaims that that this is eternal life, to know you, the only living and true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. God has revealed Himself in the Gospel. Jesus Christ is not merely the Savior, He is the means by which God reveals His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the express image of the Father's person, the brightness of the Father's glory. If we've seen Him, we've seen the Father. Isaiah 40 emphasizes that uh, not only are we to receive that message of comfort, comfort to the people of God, but we are in doing so to behold our God. So let's not disregard the existence, the attributes, the triunity of God. Let's bring those things front and center. If God has saved you, He saved you so that you can study His character to know who He is. What does it mean when we say that the Father eternally begat the Son? What does it mean that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son? What do these things mean? We need to study these things. We need to learn and know and cultivate a a, a pious and spiritual knowledge of God who has saved us through Christ. Second application. This needs to impact our evangelism. If Christ's death serves to justify God Himself, then when we declare the Gospel, we ought to be declaring the righteousness of God. Not just the righteousness of Christ for salvation, but in doing so, we ought to set the entire plan of redemption before people and say, this points to who God is. The God who made you is merciful. But in extending mercy, the God who made you is demonstrating His own righteousness and justice. We need to declare and prove and demonstrate the righteous character of God when we preach the Gospel, when we share the Gospel. It's the Holy Spirit, we're told, that convicts the world of what? Of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. The Apostle Paul, before Felix, the civil magistrate, He preached on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. When we proclaim the Gospel, we need to be telling people, you are wrong and God is right. You have sinned and God is righteous. God has revealed a way of salvation and so far you've been wrong to reject it. And now He gives you an opportunity. Come to the Lord Jesus. He's the door. Come to Him. Enter in through that gate of salvation. Turn to Him and be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive His righteousness. But if you don't, there is a righteous judgment to come. We need to emphasize in our evangelism God's righteousness. How can we proclaim Christ's death accurately if we're not including this element that it serves to justify God Himself? If we proclaim a gospel wherein God is only a God who justifies sinners 
and not a God who is also just in doing so and just in damning those who reject it, what kind of gospel have we preached? Uh, In some sense, it's half a gospel or no gospel at all. We're thankful that God uses our our weak and and, uh, inadequate efforts, but we we need to become more biblical in our evangelism. Psalm 22 ends with this concerning the proclamation of the gospel of our resurrected Savior. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has done this. If we don't proclaim God's attribute of righteousness, then people aren't going to understand why Jesus had to die on the cross anyway. What's the purpose of the death of Christ? Why did He shed His blood? Until we understand God's righteousness and the bad news of damnation, we're never going to understand Christ's righteousness and the good news of salvation. Thirdly, the fact that Christ's death justifies God Himself and His purpose to do that reveals something about true conversion. To be truly converted is to declare, I am wrong and God is right. It's to justify God. It's to justify His Word. It's to justify all of God's Word. And we're told that those who were converted by the ministry of John the Baptist, Luke 7.29, listen to this. And when all the people heard Him, it's Jesus speaking about John the Baptist, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. So here's a test, here's a fruit of true conversion. Do you justify God? Do you justify? Do you declare to be good and righteous and holy and true every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Or are there parts of the Bible that like Thomas Jefferson, you're just snipping and and cutting and pasting? Or are you justifying God? Are you believing His Word? When He condemns your sin, are you willing to confess that sin? To confess in Greek means to say the same thing. Homo legao. To say the same thing. God says this, are you willing to say the same about yourself? Yes, Lord, I've sinned. You've said I've sinned. You've said I've fallen short of the glory of God. You've said that my mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You've said this. You've said that. Are you willing to say that same thing and say, God, you're correct. You were right. Your word was right. Your son was right. I was wrong. Are you willing to declare and and accept God's perfect righteousness. That's what we find throughout the Psalms. We'll sing Psalm 130b in a moment. We already sang Psalm 143, Selection C. In in so many of these Psalms, what is the psalmist doing? Psalm 51 as well. Lord, against you and you only, I've sinned. To show that you're right and I'm wrong. Lord, if you were to judge iniquity, who could stand? I need forgiveness because you're right and I'm wrong. If we don't have that mindset, there's nothing of true conversion in our lives. Fourthly, uh, sanctification. 
when we experience true spiritual growth and sanctification, one of the marks is that especially in times of affliction, we do not foolishly make accusations against God. Job 1.20 and following, Job, his whole life just fell apart. His kids uh, are, are killed and just one calamity after another. It says he arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. You see it all throughout the Scriptures. The true, sanctified, maturing believer is one as hard as it is under great affliction can cry out, He's done all things well and there's no unrighteousness in Him. Fifthly, humility. Paul says in this Gospel that declares that God is right and we are wrong, there's no place for boasting. There's no place for self-justification. Job got into that a little bit when his friends were uncharitable toward him. He kind of reacted. Job 32, verse 2, he's condemned for that reaction of focusing too much on justifying himself. But you see, if we understand the Gospel, and if we're growing into conformity to it, then our focus is not on, I'm right, this person's wrong. Our focus is, is on God's righteousness. God be merciful to me, the sinner. There's no place for boasting, for superiority. Uh, The church at Rome had all kinds of quarrels between the the Jews and the Gentiles, and there was cultural warfare at that time between these two groups. And Paul says, enough. Humble yourself. God is right, and we're all in need of His righteousness. And we all deserve His righteous wrath. And by faith, we've all been declared righteous in the righteousness of His Son. It also gives us assurance. We're told that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. If God were not righteous in His character, we could not trust any of His promises. If He could arbitrarily save people without satisfying perfect justice, In other words, he would uh, uh, dish out mercy that is unjust and he could just as easily take back that mercy because there would be no justice in all his ways. A God who can arbitrarily save, can arbitrarily damn, our God is not arbitrary. Our God is just and righteous. You confess your sins through faith in Christ. He is just to forgive. He cannot but do what He's promised to do. It gives us assurance that we can come and be pardoned. Finally, it gives us assurance of God's judgment. The cross is proof of the doctrine of hell. If there was no hell, there had been no need of a cross. If God is not righteous to punish sinners who come before His throne in their sin then He would not have had to send His Son to die on the cross and endure infinite wrath on behalf of hell-deserving sinners because there wouldn't be any hell-deserving sinners because there'd be no hell and therefore there'd be no cross. And so, my friends, we need to be reverent. We need to be filled with fear and trembling. 
even as we look to God as our Heavenly Father, if we're in Christ, but especially if we are outside of Christ, we ought to tremble. You ought to tremble because if God damned His own Son on the cross and poured out His wrath upon Jesus, hanging on Calvary to maintain His righteousness, what will He do to you who are outside of Christ? If He didn't spare His own Son, will He spare you? Paul tells us that there's no escape. There's no escape. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? There's only one way of escape. Take it now while you have the chance. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for your holy and righteous character, which is as light to shine upon our own unrighteous and unfaithful character, revealing our sin, humbling us under your mighty hand, that we might confess our sin and cast our burden on the Lord and receive joy unspeakable and full of glory when that pardon is declared in our consciences. We pray that it would here in this closing psalm that our sins are forgiven, that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.